Chapter Ten of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter Ten, Cook River Concluded, and Ancient Glaciers. As soon as possible, we went on, partly by track cutting and partly in the riverbed, amongst the worst boulders we had yet seen. It was not a case of climbing over those stones because that was impossible we simply had to crawl and squeeze in and out amongst them until we could find a place to leave the river and get on to the hillside where we blazed a track this was rendered necessary because the boulders were practically impassable for half a mile in three and a half hours when we had gone perhaps a mile certainly not much more we came to the largest boulder in the river this is named tony's rock and must have come down on an ancient glacier from a mile and a half to two miles up the valley it is not the same formation as that of Ryan's Peak, under which it lies. Behind it, on the slope, and leaning against it are several other giant stones, but not nearly so large. Above it, the riverbed is easier and more open, only a few large boulders appearing. The dimensions of Tony's Rock are height, 156 feet, aneroid, circumference, 843 feet. We were unable to measure more than the three sides of the stone, as the fourth had other stones heaped against it. However, we agreed at the time that the figure quoted was not over the mark, as the three sides alone exceeded 700 feet. I do not know the dimensions of known erratic blocks in other parts of the world, so cannot say how this compares with them. Douglas states that he measured one in the Waipara, a branch of the Arawata River, behind Jackson's Bay, and it showed slightly over 200 feet in height, with a girdle a trifle under 1,000 feet. In that locality there are several nearly as large, and one, which he could not measure, perhaps a little larger. Of these, however, I cannot speak from personal observation. The boulders in Cook River between Castle Rock and Tony's Rock are only approached by some in the Copeland River below Welcome Flat, for number and size. As the lower side of Tony's apparently gave capital shelter, we decided to move our quarters at once, but before reaching cave camp again, more rain set in, so we stayed there for the night. Next morning was cold and wet, snow falling at the cave, but at noon we packed our loads, and during a lull in the storm made for Tony's Rock. Before reaching it, however, another snowstorm came on, and making the bush cold and wet drenched us and our loads very quickly. A short distance below Tony's Rock, the whole river goes over a fine fall of some fifty feet in height, caused by two large boulders obstructing its course. In the middle of the narrow channel, a knob of rock, not unlike a camel's head, makes the water rise in a wave six or eight feet high, and spread out in a fan-shaped mass of foam. Behind this fall, I believe one could walk and cross the riverbed dry shod, for it shoots out a considerable distance. The effect is very striking, as the river is by no means a small one, and in summer it would be even finer, for there would be a larger volume of water. The difficulty of obtaining a photograph of this fall afforded a good example of the size of the boulders. Hearing the roar of the water when cutting the track, we climbed a tree to look ahead, and saw the fall some two hundred yards or more further up the river. We therefore went to the edge of the bush, and found that, in order to get a good view, the camera should be out in the open. It was by no means easy to get down again into the river from the bank, which was formed of a series of large stones, against which the debris from the hillside has been heaped up. Determined, however, to get my photograph, 
I slid down the smooth surface of one of the rocks, and landed safely on to the top of another, some twenty-five feet below, and was even then thirty feet above the water, on a flat boulder, off which I could not get, for it was standing in the river separated from the others, except on the side I had come down. Having taken the photograph, it was impossible to climb back, without help, up the smooth face down which I had come, and as we had left the rope at the cave, Douglas had to go back into the scrub to look for a pole, which was not easy to find owing to the vegetation, being gnarled and twisted at this altitude. However, he found one, which was just long enough for me to catch hold of, and having passed up my boots and camera, I was able with bare feet and help from Douglas to scramble to the top again. There is nothing exciting about this incident, but it helps, to some extent, to show how large the stones were. Just before reaching Tony's Rock, Betsy caught us the second bird we had found since leaving Castle Rock a week before. It was a decided curiosity in the shape of a white kiwi, and no doubt its skin would be valuable, but as usual, hunger for meat overcame scientific ardor, so we made it into stew. The skin is the most nutritious part of a kiwi, therefore we could not afford to keep it for stuffing. Heavy snow fell again in the night, covering the ground round our shelter, which was some three thousand feet above sea level, and to our disgust we found that this palatial residence was a fraud, for the water trickled down on the inside and wetted us wherever we tried to sleep. I have always noticed that whenever there is a leak in canvas or rock, it always happens to occur exactly above one's face. The night was bitterly cold, as we had left our canvas at a lower camp and the shelter under Tony's rock was so large that it was practically the same as sleeping in the open. We had not even our roof and two walls. The morning broke clear and frosty, but snow was lying a foot or more deep all around, and instead of melting would in all probability lie in for the rest of the winter, gradually increasing in depth until the valley would be entirely blocked. It is hard to credit the amount of snow which collects in these narrow valleys in winter. Some must have two hundred or three hundred feet, piled up in them, during a bad winter, by the heavy storms and frequent avalanches. More snow falls in the winter in New Zealand Alps than most persons would imagine, considering the temperate latitude, and in the spring it melts with great rapidity, causing heavy floods in the rivers. As our stock of provisions was now nearly finished, we decided to push up the river for one day, lay off the head of the valley hastily, and retreat before more bad weather delayed us indefinitely. Following the valley for some little distance, we turned up a creek off Ryan's Range on the right, and after a great deal of wading and pounding through soft snow and snow-covered scrub, reached a point from which we could complete the map of the valley. The snout of the La Perouse Glacier lay below us, a mile to two miles further up the valley, and the river flowed over a bed of smaller stones, which were easy to travel on until Tony's Rock was reached after which it begins a rapid descent through the boulder-filled valley up which we came. Such a large basin at the head is unexpected, and like the Balfour Valley, is a great deal wider than we had anticipated. This is owing to the very precipitous nature of the Balfour and Copeland Ranges, between which the river flows. Above Tony's Rock, the valley turns with a wide sweep to the left, and opens out on the south bank, while on the northern side the Balfour Range continues steeper than before. From the glacier to the bend in the river, the south bank slopes back more or less gently for perhaps half a mile, showing three or four old moraine terraces covered with low, dense mountain scrub. Behind these slopes, Mount Copeland and Little's Peak rise abruptly in immense precipices of two or three thousand feet. Mount Stokes, La Perouse, 
and Hicks, apparently block the head of the valley, while Mount Cook shows over Harper's Saddle. The La Perouse Glacier, however, comes off the main range between Mount Tasman and Dampier, the upper portion lying away to the left, round another bend, only the snout and lower portion of the glacier being visible until a higher point on Ryan's range is reached. As seen in May 1894, the picture describes description. The valley was blocked with snow to the water's edge, the river looking like a black ribbon in the white snow, as it flowed down the valley in graceful curves. The giant cliffs of Copeland and Little's Peak were white from base to summit, the snow having been blown against the steep faces and frozen by the cold wind and frost of the night, formed glistening icicles. At first there was little black rock to relieve the dazzling whiteness of the landscape, but after the sun had been up some hours, the precipices began to shed their white mantle, and the steep buttresses and couloirs began to show their shapes and forms. Now and then the stillness, which was almost oppressive, was broken by a slight hissing noise, which gradually increased into a roar, as a great avalanche poured down over cliffs of Little's or Ryan's Peak. One descended within three hundred yards of us, bounding over a sheer drop of seven hundred feet or more, like a great waterfall, about fifty yards broad, and lasting for two or three minutes. Our clothes had become very tattered and worn, owing to the rough usage coming up the river, and afforded us very little warmth. Consequently, the morning's work, wading through snow and bruising under and over snow-covered scrub, had chilled us to the bone. Yet when we had finished our observations, we were loth to leave such a glorious view, in spite of the cold and hunger. I have often wondered what we should have thought of that scene, if we had been warmly clad and well fed, because my experience is that discomfort spoils the enjoyments of a view to some extent, and if we admired the head of Cook River, as we saw it in our somewhat wretched condition, how much more beautiful would it have appeared under pleasanter circumstances. Down the valley to the north we could see a bank of angry-looking clouds rolling in from the sea, and already settling down over Craig's range, so we dared not stay any longer, in case another storm prevented our getting down the river. Therefore, hurrying back to Tony's Rock, we packed our loads without delay, and made for the cave, which we reached about sunset. Here a good fire and an extra doughboy each, including Betsy, soon made us forget the discomfort of a day's work in soft snow and ragged garments. On the way down we saw a cuckoo, and his usual companion the check-shirt bird. It is not customary to find these birds in the mountains during the early winter, as they generally migrate to warmer latitudes at the end of the summer and return in the spring. The former is the Maori Koikwa, Eudinimus tetensis, and like his English namesake, he makes use of other birds' nests. The check-shirt follows him in his migrations, and is often seen with him in the lower hills. I heard a curious story connected with this little wanderer, told by a friend of mine in a digger's hut. He said that sailors believe these birds to represent the spirits of drowned men, and that it is therefore unlucky to kill them. On one occasion he was down south, below Gillespie's, and with five others, was trying to shoot a check-shirt bird close to the hut of another digger, whom I shall call Mac. Old Mac came out to where they were shooting, and begged them to desist, for it was bad luck, he said, and meant a violent end to those concerned in the death of the bird. Of course, his hearers laughed at the idea, but he was very earnest, and said he would give them evidence of the truth of his statement. Taking them into his hut, he related his own life's history. He was one of a party of Newfoundland fishermen, who left their homes in a ship built by themselves for Australia in the early days of the gold diggings. 
when a few days away from land they discovered that though all were sailors they knew nothing about navigation consequently the ship drifted about aimlessly for weeks in the course of time they fell in with a man-of-war and discovered that instead of being near the cape of good hope they were off the horn the commander of the warship put a man on board with a knowledge of navigation and he piloted the unfortunate ship to adelaide from whence they all went to the gold-fields mac had no luck so he shipped on board a trading schooner to the islands and all went well till some man was fool enough to kill a check-shirt bird from that day their luck changed and ultimately they lost the schooner in a gale five or six men succeeded in getting away in an open boat and were afloat for many days the boat was picked up by a steamer near auckland and in it were four dead bodies and a living skeleton almost a maniac from his fearful sufferings this was old mac it was a long time before he recovered and was able to go down to westland to try his luck again on a goldfield my informant assured me that the manner in which the old fellow related his tale and the power with which he described his awful time in the boat with the dead bodies too weak to throw them overboard exceeded anything he had ever read mac ended his yarn by saying anyway you can't kill them with shot you must use silver out of consideration for the old sailor's feelings my friend took no further part in the proceedings but he remembers as he went away seeing a man cutting up a half-crown whether they killed the bird or not he never heard all he can say is that three out of the five died violent deaths and as the others have gone away he cannot say what became of them as he said it is one of those curious coincidences which tend to strengthen people's belief in superstitions one long day from the cave camp took us to the diggers huts where one of our friends insisted on our staying and we enjoyed a good meal for the first time for ten days but as he was short of meat we pushed on next morning to ryan's hut to find it empty and nothing to eat only one or two rotten potatoes these were naturally hardly good enough therefore on the following day we started breakfastless to mr wilson's survey camp at cook river settlement seven miles away over the flats here bill boyd the cook with the help of mutton vegetables and plum duff soon persuaded us that life was after all worth living it may perhaps be thought that we only had ourselves to blame for short rations and starvation on this trip but i think it was our misfortune not our fault in the first place the valley was unexplored and we had every right to look forward to as many birds as we had need of for food and as we always relied greatly on these we only took enough food to last us for the trip with help of birds again we did not anticipate more than ten days work at the most so we took flour rice oatmeal tea cocoa sugar a little meat treacle suet for cooking doughboys and a tin or two of sardines in sufficient quantity plus birds to last us for that period had we found birds as we reasonably anticipated the provisions we took would with care have lasted more than two weeks and even if they were exhausted we could have lived well with the help of the pea rifle the luck was against us in every respect for the first three or four days we had meat and went on eating as if there was no need to economize by that time we had gone some way up the river and the bad weather not only prevented a retreat but delayed our advance consequently having only caught the kiwi and kaka we had to live for ten days relying entirely on the stores which were left and which owing to delays would only keep us reasonably if we had found plenty of game to give some idea of the help that we derive from birds 
I may safely say that stores, which would usually last for ten days, comfortably, would only give perhaps three days of good meals in the event of finding no birds. It is no joke to be compelled to divide six good meals, consisting of flour and rice, into rations to extend over ten days, and at the same time do a considerable amount of heavy work. The less said about our clothes, the better. After a long season of eight months in the ranges, the constant wet, rough usage in bush and scrub, etc., soon made havoc of the best materials. The only original garment of mine now in existence is a coat of Burberry's gabardine, which lasted me without tearing for the whole of this season and the next, and is now gracing the back of a digger down south, and he still swears by it. Some valleys are so narrow that, if they run east and west, there are places in them which never get the sun, winter or summer. Here the bush, which grows just as luxuriantly, is always wet, and if we are above bush line, snow or creeks wet us daily. Ordinary tweeds, therefore, become rotten, and are easily torn. I find the best costume to be a flannel shirt, woolen jersey, and thick knitted woolen drawers, without trousers, and some spare canvas to patch with. It is absolutely necessary to wear flannel or wool next to the skin, owing to the constant wet, and woolen garments underneath trousers are too hot for my comfort, so I generally dispense with the latter. After a few months, one may be said to be wearing a number of patches, connected together by woolen material. After leaving Cook River, I decided to go north to Hokitika, as winter would prevent further work, and there were two hundred or more photographs to develop and print, also sundry work to be done in the office to complete the field work. Accordingly, having spent a few days in photographing the wondrous panoramas and other views from the flats and sea bluffs, I tramped with my goods and chattels some thirty miles along the beach to Okarito. Here I obtained a horse from the mailman, and in three days arrived at Hokitika, after a spell of nearly eight months in a batwing, six of which were spent in the ranges, chiefly on new ground. Our work up Cook River finally settled a doubtful point in the topography of the district, namely the course of the Balfour Range. When in 1890 Blackiston and I made the first ascent of Harper's Saddle at the head of the Hooker Glacier, we were unable, owing to the fog, to see clearly down to the west coast. On our return I was asked by the Westland Survey Department, firstly, what was the true course of the divide? Secondly, was the Balfour Range an offshoot of Hicks? St. David's Dome, or Tasman? The first question I answered without hesitation, but the second had to be left for future solution. On looking at the map made from distant trigonometrical stations, I was inclined to believe that there was an error in the Balfour Glacier and Range, because, if the latter was an offshoot of the divide near Tasman, it left such a ridiculously small neve for the glacier, which was shown to be four or five miles long. The La Perouse Glacier had been put in by guesswork, and it was more than probable that it was shown far too large, and that its upper basin really belonged to the Balfour Glacier. This would mean that the Balfour Range was an offshoot of Mount Hicks, and not of Tasman, or possibly might be a detached range. In the event of the latter being the case, the large neve alluded to would supply both glaciers. However, up Cook River, and from Ryan's Peak later on, the truth was evident, and it is now finally settled that the Balfour Range comes off the divide, just south of Mount Tasman. Also, the La Perouse is a large glacier, as shown on the map, and nearly clear of surface moraine. The glacier is nearly five miles long and descends by a fine ice fall from its neve, 
flowing in graceful curves between high precipices with one or two tributaries from the east it has but little surface moraine as compared with other new zealand glaciers having only a fringe of debris on each side and being completely covered near its terminal face about a quarter of its length from the snout a peculiar bar of moraine running across it from side to side looks as if a large slip had come down and shot right across the ice the course of the balfour range having been settled it only remains to find some reason for so large a glacier as the balfour which is six miles long flowing from such an insignificant neve i have already described this glacier with its neve detached from its trunk the only available theory so far as i can see is that the great western face of tasman which rises abruptly in precipices for over seven thousand feet from the glacier is too steep to hold much snow it faces southwest the cold quarter and must catch an immense quantity of snow in the winter which comes down frequently in large avalanches filling the upper end of the valley and forming the trunk of the glacier there are also no doubt avalanches from craig's range on the northern side of the glacier and these bring down masses of debris and broken rock which completely cover the ice and to a large extent protect it from the sun's heat the steep ranges surrounding the valley must also prevent the sun from reaching the glacier in the winter and also part of the day in the summer when douglas explored the left-hand branch of the copeland river a tributary of the karangarua in eighteen ninety two he noticed that though mount stokes apparently dropped without interruption to the strontian glacier the avalanches from the peak never reached the bottom but appeared to be swallowed up halfway down the slope this led him to expect one of those peculiar instances of the broken nature of the ranges in the form of a large fissure in the mountain side or narrow deep gorge with an outlet into cook river we were therefore looking out for such a cleft when at the head of the river and found that his suspicions were correct for a narrow and dark gorge comes into the valley evidently containing a small glacier formed by avalanches there was too much snow to see whether a glacier really existed but we decided that there was a small one the stream from it flows into cook river a short distance below the la perouse glacier the cook river glaciers were evidently in the past of considerable size to judge by the numerous moraines and terraces in the upper and lower parts of the valleys the stream of ice which came down the main valley was probably the largest and its marks are to be seen on the lower end of the balfour range a considerable height above the river on the slopes under ryan's peak the erratic blocks scattered on the hillside show that the ice must have been seven hundred feet thick at the least below tony's rock after forcing its way down the valley of the cook river it would be joined by a stream of ice which came down the balfour valley from mount tasman of the day between mcbain's creek and the balfour river is a rounded hill which has evidently been shaped by glacier action and must at one period have been completely covered with ice behind this hill to the east is a low flat depression showing that the ice after shrinking somewhat had still found its way into the main glacier down mcbain's creek as well as the balfour gorge and on shrinking still further it had ceased to flow down the creek and only found one outlet through the gorge of the present river after being augmented by this ice stream and a smaller one from craig's range the glacier would flow down to the flat country probably joining the ice from the fox valley and from the south there is little doubt from douglas's observations in the many rivers he has explored that the general direction of the ancient ice flow was north my own observations small though they are in comparison with his tend to support his theory 
in the south there is perhaps as fine an ancient moraine as anywhere in westland namely the cascade moraine which begins at two hundred feet and goes back gradually rising to nineteen hundred feet in height formerly it projected four miles out to sea to open bay island which has some moraine debris on it in this moraine douglas who explored that country some years ago found several red stones which had come north from the red hill country in no case has he discovered any red rocks lying south of that country but always north an interesting feature about the cascade moraine from a geologist's point of view is that it is stratified and in some of the layers seashells are to be found well inland other evidences of the northern flow of the ice is to be found in the old wanganui and hokateka glaciers in the two rivers of these names there are belts of serpentine rock pieces and blocks of which douglas has found north of these rivers but never south in the waitaha river for instance he found several proofs that an ancient glacier came over from the wanganui country to that valley carrying with it blocks of serpentine rock the moranic drift of the ancient franz joseph and calorie glaciers is to the north round lake maparika and could be traced even further than that and the greatest mass of drift near cook river lies to the north and if this theory of the ice flow is correct it would belong to the old glacier the whole of the low country is covered with moranic hills and terraces of various heights up to three hundred or four hundred feet at intervals along the sea beaches these terraces form the bluffs already mentioned it has been assumed from past observations made in the low country only that the old glaciers flow direct to the sea between these high terraces this however i venture to think is the wrong view to take my belief is that the ancient glaciers being some six hundred feet thick at the point they left the valleys would spread out over an immense area when the lateral pressure of the hillsides was removed probably at one time they joined and formed a vast sea of ice at the foot of the hills covered with a heavy mass of moraine caused by constant denudation in the mountains when the period of retreat began they separated again and gradually retired up the valleys leaving a confusion of moraine hillocks all over the lower country this vast accumulation of moranic drift would be gradually cut through by the rivers thus forming the high terraces now seen along the river sides and which have hitherto been taken for lateral moraines if the theory here advanced be correct then the terraces would not necessarily be either terminal or lateral moraines but merely accidental embankments carved into their present shape by the rivers should however the theory that they are lateral moraines be the right one then i am at a loss to understand what caused the vast collection of moranic deposits between the rivers and in places along the foot of the hills where no valleys exist it seems that those accumulation of drift hills lying north of the waiho river and also north of cook river must have been left by the great ice flow extending all over the low country and had it not been for the rivers of a later date cutting broad valleys to the sea they would have extended over the whole coast in hopeless confusion and no long terraces would have existed at all from the terramacau river to bruce bay twenty miles south of gillespies the rivers have cut through old moranic accumulations which extend from the hills in many cases to the present sea beach and from bruce bay to jackson's bay the sea bluffs are rocky and the old moraines do not appear again till after the latter place is passed there has been in the past a considerable amount of gold brought out of cook river but at the present time two or three diggers only make a small living just above the point where the river leaves the hills 
traces or colors of gold have been found a considerable distance up the main branch but not payable and in the balfour gold was obtained in the sixties which paid well i believe at the junction of the two rivers and was traced right up to the glacier harry the whale and dick nickel two old fossickers are said to have discovered the balfour glacier in eighteen sixty six but it is quite useless to consider the journeys made by diggers for they never bring out any information that is reliable how far up cook river they went it is hard to say though a tradition exists of harry the whale german harry and tony the greek having gone up some miles and crossed the copeland range into architect creek which flows into the copeland river the enterprising old school of diggers and prospectors is fast dying out but paddy mckenna an old man now and then makes solitary trips up the balfour where he is commonly supposed to have located a gold-bearing reef it is sad to see these old-time prospectors disappearing and no one to take their places the younger generation on the west coast have a strong dislike i may say fear not only of the hard work and life entailed by journeys into the ranges but also have a rooted objection to going off the beaten track they are good enough men on horses after cattle near their huts but neither love nor money will tempt them to go far afield End of chapter ten